Um, and that is that we have a remembering your baptism today. And if you would like to come forward to be baptized, uh, maybe that happened when you were eight years old or 10 years old or something to that effect. And you've just been feeling the tug of God uh, to rededicate yourself to the Lord, to confess yourself or to confess that he is your Lord and your Savior publicly. We invite you to come and do that today at the close of our service um, and surprise me, maybe surprise yourself. Um, so uh, we, we invite you to do that. Um, also, we have our chili cook-off coming up this coming Wednesday and our men's prayer breakfast uh, next Sunday. I heard that the ladies had their first uh, ladies' prayer breakfast or prayer gathering this morning, and the room was full, and there was a lot of food. So, hey, I'm excited about that. I think that was uh, just a ter- terrific thing for our church to experience. Uh, so we look forward to more things like that happening. We continue in our topic, uh, politics and the Bible. And our text today comes from Exodus chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. Exodus chapter 20. I must say, uh, I know that the, the election is coming up this Tuesday, which means that my sermon series is over. Because um, I've been having more fun uh, studying and preparing for these than perhaps anything that I've had an opportunity to talk about. So um, but Exodus chapter 20 um, is where Moses uh, brings to the people of Israel uh, the Ten Commandments. And so they're in Sinai, uh, the Sinai Peninsula. We have a picture of it here, a map for you. Um, you can see where the little red lines converge on the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. That's Mount Sinai. And so the Israelites had gathered around at the base of Mount Sinai. There's a picture of it as well, of the mountain. It takes about 45 minutes to an hour to walk up this mountain. Uh, depending on what kind of shape you're in, and uh, it's pretty rigorous, pretty grueling. I think it said there's like 750 steps uh, that a monk carved out over the course of his lifetime in penance, trying literally carved out 750 steps out of this rock, wasn't able to finish it. Some other monks came in behind him after he died and finished those out. And there's a little church called St. Catherine's that's built up on top of, of this uh, mountain. And and it's believed that this is the mountain where Moses met with God, the thick cloud that came and covered the mountain um, and so Moses is there receiving uh, the Ten Commandments. He's receiving this first portion of the law of God. And so we're going to read the first little snippet of that from Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verses 1 through verse 3. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet, as is our custom here at Hebron for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 20, we'll be reading verses 1 through 3. Here we go. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You may be seated. Thank you all so much. Um, So let's just kind of walk through these verses together, and then we'll get to the uh, important question, right? Um, Verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what's God saying here? God's reminding the Israelites that, look, I'm the reason why you're here. I'm the reason why you're camped out at the base of this mountain. I'm the reason why you're not still in slavery. The Red Sea didn't part itself, right? Those plagues didn't just appear out of thin air. God says, I'm the cause of you all being delivered out of slavery. And so now that you're clear of slavery, uh, here's the first of the commandments I, I want to give you. Verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated before me there in the text actually means in place of me or except for me. So what God is asking here of the Israelite people, remember, he's given them a choice here that they're supposed to have no other gods before them. Um, and that's a choice that they're going to make, whether or not they're going to do that. Um, but, the, but the point of this is God's saying, hey, look, I don't just want to be the premier God, one out of 25. I want to be your exclusive God. So he says, no gods before me, no gods except 
me. That's what he's saying here. I don't want to be the chairman of your board. I want to be your sole and only board member. And the only way that you're going to listen to me when it comes to things like honoring your parents, not murdering, not stealing, and all these behavioral issues is that you establish me as your primary, number one, exclusive, only God. Um, and so again, these are God's words to the nation of Israel. And notice again that last thought that he leaves them with a choice. They don't have to do this. Nobody's twisting their arm. Nobody's making them make God their one and only. Um, Joshua says some years later, Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell now, but it's a choice and you need to choose. And Joshua says, as for me and my house, we've made our choice. We're going to serve the Lord. Okay, well, that's our treatment of this text for today. And so that brings us to the point where we want to ask our most important question. That question we ask every week around here is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, that's the fastest you've ever gotten to the most important question. What's going on here? Things are a little bit crazy today. Yeah, it is. Um, you're right. Uh, we have actually two really important questions that we want to ask today. One is what difference this makes to your life and mine, but also what difference does this make to our country? Let's tackle the first of those questions first. What difference does this make to you and me? You know, the Lord Jesus codified or codified what it means to have no other gods before me when he said in Matthew 22 and verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and over in Luke, and all your strength. Jesus is here talking about prioritizing God the Father above all else, putting him before everything else. The same commandment or the same concept is what's in commandment number one. Flip over to John chapter 4 and verse 34. Jesus said on another occasion, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. The thing that nourishes my body is to do God's will, to set him above all else. John chapter 8, middle verse 28, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just what the Father has told me to say. John chapter 6 and verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, Jesus said, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And then Jesus said in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Jesus is establishing that his life, the sum total of who he is, his will is completely under and submitted to God the Father. That is, that he has no other gods before God the Father. Listen, Jesus was absolutely, totally surrendered to the will of God in every single area of his life. Jesus had placed God on the throne of his life, and he had dethroned himself. This is how Jesus obeyed commandment number one. This is how Jesus lived out commandment number one, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, your strength. That's how Jesus understood it, to put no other gods before him. And so because of that, we need to have the same attitude that the Lord Jesus had when it comes to our relationship with God. We have to dethrone ourselves just like Jesus did. We have to put God the Father, we have to enthrone him high above everything else, above every other aspect of our life. That's what commandment number one is looking for. That's what commandment number one looks like in reality. Okay, So that's the difference that it makes to your life and to mine. It means that when we go, that we go where God tells us to go, that we do what God tells us to do, that we say what God tells us to say, that we live the way God asks, asks, asks us to live, that we forgive the way God asks us to forgive, and that we do not negotiate with God over the consequences of following him, but rather we simply obey. That's what it means to have no other gods before the Lord our God. And that's the difference that it makes. Now, what difference does this make to us as a nation? Well, to put no other gods before the God of the Bible, uh, what, you know, what are we talking about? What do we have in view? Well, I've got three ways that we as a nation can put no other gods 
before the God of the Bible. Number one, and, and, and number, not foremost, but just number one, um, <clears throat> uh, you, we must um, bring back into national consciousness our Christian roots. We must bring back into our national consciousness our Christian roots. You know, many scholars these days, if we were to these days, if we were to suggest that America is a Christian nation or that's founded on Christian principles, they would scoff at the idea that, oh, well, we know that the original founding fathers were deists or that they really didn't even crack their Bible. Well, friends, this is just revisionist history is all that is. Let me enter into evidence some of what we actually know from history, some of what is actually recorded throughout history. For example, Samuel Adams, the signer of the Declaration, wrote in his will, and I quote, I rely on the merits of Jesus Christ for a pardon of all of my sins. Remember, this is a guy who signed the Declaration of Independence. And this is what he has to say about his God and who his God is. Benjamin Rush, also a signer of the Declaration, wrote, My only hope of salvation is the death of God's Son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. Again, another signer of the Declaration. John Witherspoon from New Jersey, also a signer of the Declaration, writes, If you are not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, if you are not clothed with the spotless robe of his righteousness, you will, you must perish forever. Daniel Boone, who fought in the Revolutionary War, one of America's great pioneers, wrote these words, The religion I have is to love and fear God, to believe in Jesus Christ, to do all good to my neighbor and myself that I can, and as little harm as I can help, and trust in God's mercy for the rest. And finally, Alexander Hamilton, a signer of the Constitution, wrote, I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is just a small sampling. I've got books. I've been reading them for weeks now. Books with scores of information like this, of where the original signers of the Declaration, of where the original signers of the Constitution profess their faith in Christ. You say, but Gordon, what about Benjamin Franklin? What about, what about, uh, what about uh, Thomas Jefferson? Weren't they deists? Indeed they were. They believed that there was some God in the world, but that that God was not necessarily the God of the Bible. They just weren't convinced of that. They weren't sure of that. But here's the point. Revisionist historians want us to believe that the faith of these two men, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, are representative of the faith of the founding fathers of our country. And friends, that is simply a lie. That is not true at all. In fact, what we, what's represented here is that the faith of the majority of the founding fathers is clearly in the God of the Bible. And I just prove that to you. The, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were two men among 56 who signed the Declaration of Independence. They were in the exception to the rule, not the rule itself. What about the evidence of the founding documents themselves? For example, in Delaware's state constitution, written by two signers of the Declaration, George Reed and Thomas McKean, and by John Dickinson, a constitutional signer, the state's constitution stipulates, and I quote, Every person who shall be chosen a member of either house or appointed to any office or place of trust shall make and subscribe the following declaration to wit. I, insert the person's name, do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ his only Son and the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forever. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. If you're going to serve the state of Delaware... You have to agree to this profession of faith according to the original constitution of the state of Delaware. 
You say, but hey, Gordon, isn't there something in the Constitution, an article, I can't remember it right now offhand, isn't there something in the Constitution that says, one of the amendments, not one of the amendments, one of the articles that says that it, there's no qualifier of religion or profession of faith in order to serve our federal government? Yes, you're absolutely right. That does exist in the Constitution. We passed out, you can flip through it and find it. It's like article, I want to say, now I'm not even going to try. Um, but in any case, it's in there. I was reading it this morning. Um, and there is that statement in there that says, that you, are, that you don't have to profess faith in Christ in order to serve the federal government. But again, that's the federal government. The idea of federalism was that the states would be able to choose what they wanted to do. And friends, clearly, clearly, here's an example, that the states understood themselves to be a Christian nation and it's forming. Again, Massachusetts um, Constitution, with the help of Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Robert Treat, uh, Payne and John Adams similar, similarly required, and I quote, any person chosen governor, lieutenant governor, counselor, senator, or representative of the state of Massachusetts and accepting the trust shall before he proceed to ex execute his duties of his place or office, make and subscribe the following declaration, the profession of faith. I, insert their name, do declare that I believe the Christian religion and have the firm persuasion of its truth. Again, friends, this is just a small sampling of the abounding examples all through uh, the original documents of our country. America's Christian roots are undeniable, and it's historically verifiable. I mean, we're reading from original documents from the founding of our country, friends, and this is how they saw the world and the kind of people that they wanted representing their country. A third piece of evidence is the opening lines from the Peace Treaty of Britain itself. The opening lines in, the, in, the, in, in, in negotiating that treaty with Britain said these words, in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. Friends, the founders of our country understood that Christianity was that foundation. The Constitution itself is dated as the year of our Lord, not recognizing Christians Christian tradition, but rather personalizing it. Most legal documents of that day would say, uh, in the year of the Lord. But on our Constitution, it says, in the year of our Lord, personalizing that God of the Bible is our God. This is who we are. This is, these are our roots as Americans. Out of 15,000 letters and court documents and legislative documents dating from the years 1760 to 1805, right through those years where the Declaration of Independence was being formed and the Constitution was being formed, out of 15,000 original documents written by the people who signed the Declaration, people who signed the Constitution, 34% of the quotations in those original documents are from the Bible. They're Bible verses. And you know what quotations are in there for, right? They're substantiate points that are being made. And so they're quoting the Bible to substantiate the points that they're making with regard to how our nation would be founded. The Constitution itself stipulates that when Congress passes a bill, the president has 10 days to sign it, not counting Sundays. You can read this in the Constitution. It says Sunday's an exception. We won't count that in the 10. Why? Because Sunday is a Sabbath day. They didn't want the president working on the Sabbath. And you say, well, Gordon, that doesn't prove anything. I mean, he could have been Jewish. He could have been Muslim. Well, no, that's not true because Muslims observe their Sabbath on Fridays. The Jews reserve their, observe their Sabbath on Saturdays. Christianity alone in the world observes its Sabbath on Sundays. Friends, right in the Constitution, here we have an example of how our Constitution was formed by Christians. Um, consider how religious organizations uh, that these signers were part of uh, were involved in. 
John Langdon, for example, was a vice president of the American Bible Society. This is how these guys volunteered their time. People who signed the original Constitution. Charles McHenry served as president of the Baltimore Bible Society. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney served as the president of the Charleston Bible Society and the vice president of the American Bible Society. John Witherspoon was a clergyman and head of the theological college. Alexander Hamilton as well proposed the formation of the Christian Constitution Society for the purpose of spreading Christian governments to other nations in the world. Why? Because he understood that the nation that he was forming, that he was a part of, was a Christian nation. And he wanted to proliferate that throughout the rest of the world. What about, what about the fundamental ideas of the Constitution? What are the, what are the Christian roots and some of our, our, our ideas that are formed in the Constitution itself? Well, the idea of representative government, for example, comes from Exodus chapter 18 and verse 21, where Moses realized, I can't run all this by myself. And so the scriptures read, to look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, men who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people of chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. The idea that we're going to start with small local government, we'll have the federal government where they'll be more broadly responsible. Uh, but this idea, again, friends, is what turned into our representative government. Noah Webster himself, who wrote Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 8 of the Constitution, where it describes a representative form of government, cited Exodus chapter 18 and verse 21, saying that this is what I base our representative government on from the Scriptures. Concerning the natural-born citizen requirement of our president, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 15 reads, One from among you, brothers, you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Again, where did they get the idea of our president being a natural-born citizen? They pulled it right from the scriptures. Um, and again, oh gosh, I wish I had more time, right? <laughs> there are scores of these. I mean, it was kind of like, well, which one do I choose, right? There are scores of these, loads of examples of these from the original founding documents where the people who wrote the Constitution, who signed the Declaration of Independence, said, hey, look, these are our Christian roots, undeniably. One final piece of evidence, and it's written, it's enshrined on our money, it's enshrined on our federal and state buildings, and it's the phrase, in God we trust, in God we trust. Not to mention the copies of the Ten Commandments that are used to dot courthouses all across our land and that slapped on the sides of more po of, of police cars in over 700 counties across this country. You notice you drive that around, you see that on mun local municipalities, the deputy sheriff's car or the city cars, where it says, in God we trust. Friends, that's emblazoned all around our culture. The Capitol building itself uh, in the rotunda was commissioned to be painted in 1840. There's a picture of it I have for you here. You maybe have to pull it up on Google on your phone to be able to see the detail. But in any case, uh, in that picture there that our founding fathers said, hey, look, these are the things that we want plastered in our Capitol building. When you look up and you walk in and wonder, well, what's this nation grounded on? One of the pictures that you see there of the pilgrims gathered around their Geneva Bible and praying before they're about ready to take route to America. Another one of the pictures that you see is Pocahontas being baptized in Virginia. Another one of the pictures that you see there is DeSoto planting a cross at the Mississippi River. And another of the pictures that you see is Columbus off the coast of Florida praying and dedicating this land to God. 
Friends, if a person was visiting the United States, had no idea about the United States, no idea about our history, no idea about our religion, and they were to come into America and they were to see police cars driving by and they were to walk into our rotunda, they were to look at some of our money, they were to look at our law documents, they would automatically conclude that indeed this was a Christian nation. Friends, this is, this is our history. This is rich Christian history, and it needs to be recovered. This story needs to be told, and that's one way that we as a nation can get back on track with putting no other gods before our God. Amen? All right, that part. All right, number two. Second way we can obey commandment number one as a nation is to encourage patriotism. A revival of patriotism amongst Christians. Not blind patriotism, but patriotism that seeks the good of the nation and that will honestly criticize the government and its leaders if they are doing things that are contrary to biblical moral standards. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. This is the Bible talking to you. This is the Bible talking to me as citizens of a nation. The Bible saying, let us be subject to the governing authorities of our nation. Paul goes on to say, verse 4, that the leader of our country is God's servant for our good. For our good. The Bible does not encourage anarchy, friends. The Bible does not encourage us to, uh, to push back against our government and want to illiter- eliminate our government. Rather, the Bible encourages cooperation with civil governments, for in seeking the good of our own nation, we ensure our own welfare. In other words, when America wins, we as its citizens win, right? That's common sense. Writing to the Jewish exiles in Babylon, Jeremiah encourages them on this very principle. He says, Jeremiah 29 and verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Encourage patriotism. Seek the good of our nation. Now, there's been some headlines lately where Donald Trump has said that he's a nationalist. And there's been a lot of criticism about him saying that, hey, he's a nationalist. One of the criticisms is that they say, well, don't you understand white nationalism? Don't you understand what that is, that this idea that white people are going to take over the the nation again? Is that what you're ascribing to? Well, friends, the people that are making those statements, there's a couple reasons why they're doing it, but let me just talk about exactly what it is they're saying. They're conflating white nationalism and nationalism. Two completely separate issues. One wants white people to take over the nation again. The other wants America first. The other wants phrases like made in America. The other, uh, I mean, that, that's what those, those phrases mean. It would, I don't know if it would shock you or if it would be interesting to you or whatever to know that Gandhi was a nationalist. You say, Gandhi, that pacifist guy, he was a nationalist? Yes, he had the British people who were, who were basically the overlords of, of the Indian people uh, back in the early 1900s. And so Gandhi said, hey, look, here's one of the ways that we can fight back against the British people. Let's use homespun. This is uh, basically, we don't want to buy our cotton from the British people. We don't want to buy our fabric from the British people. Rather, let's go out and make homespun. Let's go out and make our own fabric. And so that's why Gandhi started wearing all that traditional Hindu garb, because he was trying to uh, bring back a sense of national pride of, of, and, and not giving our money to our British overlords and hope that we could boot them out of the country. It would, again, same thing. Winston Churchill was a nationalist. 
nationalism is merely a feature or a characteristic of fascism. Because people want to say, hey, Donald Trump's a fascist. No, friends, because he's a nationalist. Not, not at all. Nationalism is a characteristic of fascism. The, balance, the basis of fascism is that we're, government's going to take over everything. Rather, nationalism is just pride in our country. And that's all that it is. It's a characteristic of Gandhi. It's a characteristic of, of, of Winston Churchill, just as much as it's a characteristic of Mussolini. But again, it's not a negative characteristic. It just happens to be a characteristic that follows some, uh, some errant um, system, philosophical system. Um, the idea that you would buy American goods to support your fellow citizen, even if that means that you pay a higher price, that's nationalism. And that's not a bad thing. And why would we not have pride in America? We all know it's past. We all know that there are things that have not been perfect. But instead of focusing on what's wrong or what was wrong, rather, let's focus on what's right. Um, think about it. The average life of a constitution in the nations of the world um, is about 17 years before they decide to scrap it and rewrite it. About 17 years. That's the average over the last four centuries. Um, since 1789, since the forming of our Constitution, France has had 15 different constitutions. Um, Haiti has had 23. Venezuela has drafted 25 since 1789. Ecuador has drafted 20. Thailand has drafted 17. Political instability generally characterizes the rest of the world except America. Consider the creativity of Americans. America has only 4% of the world's population, around 330, 340 million. Yet every year we produce more patents than 96% of the rest of the world. And our 4% produces an amazing 25% of the world's GDP more than any other country. We have more creativity, more stability, more pr prosperity, and we enjoy, enjoy more personal and political freedom than any other nation on this earth, America, God truly has shed his grace on you. We need to recognize that. Even the critics of America, they don't relocate. Have you noticed that? Nobody's moved to Canada, right? They just stay here and they complain rather than move someplace else. Friends, America has done more good for the world than any other nation in the history of the world. It behooves us that God has blessed us so much that we would bite the hand that's feeding us, that we would say, no, God, we don't like this nation. Friends, we must understand that God has blessed this nation and take pride in our country. God has clearly blessed America. We need to stand up for our flag, and we need to sing our national anthem. We need to, uh, verse 7 there said, pray to the Lord on America's behalf, for it is in its welfare that you find your welfare. Third and finally, we need you to pray for national revival. We as Christians need to pray. How do we make sure that the God of the Bible is the God that we serve, that we're putting no other gods before him, we need to pray for national revival. I don't think that God is done turning America around just because the economy's on fire, right? I think there's a whole lot more that God has in mind that God wants to do. Um, I was reading some statistics recently that said that less than 20% of the people in America actually attend church. And out of that 20, less than 20%, half attend church regularly. So about 10% of the American population, 9%, 10%, actually attend church on a regular basis. Friends, that breaks God's heart. 
We don't need to look far to see the depravity of our culture, the depravity of our biblical values. What's needed is national revival. Second Chronicles chapter 7, uh, God's speaking to Solomon. Solomon is the new king of Israel, and they're dedicating the temple, and God comes into the temple, and he has a conversation with Solomon about, hey, look, if things ever get off the rails here in this nation, here's what I want for you to do. Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Friends, only Jesus Christ can heal a mass number of hearts of people. We need national revival. We need the, a mass repentance of sin and a turning away from sin. And friends, that's only going to happen when a move of the Holy Spirit sweeps through and Jesus gets the hold of the hearts of the people of this country. And it has happened before. You've heard me talk about it in other sermons. And it can, and I pray that it will happen again. Let me sum up. How can we as a nation put no other gods before him? Number one, remember our Christian roots. Number two, encourage patriotism among believers. Be model citizens who love our country. Number three, and finally, pray for national revival. Um, you know, there was a day when Americans openly acknowledged that God was the source of our blessings. It led to songs like this one. O beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountains, <clears throat> majesties. Again, that word majesties is a recognition that God is our creator. For purple mountains, majesties above the fruited plain. America, America, God has shed his grace on thee and crown thy good, the prayer goes, with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for this country. We thank you for your hand, which has so clearly gone with this nation since before its founding unto now. Lord, we do believe that we are at a tipping point, a point at which either we're going to follow our own wisdom or we're going to submit to you and once again restore you as the God of this nation. God, that's our prayer. That's what we want to see. Lord, in what part we play, we ask that you would reveal that, whether it be in our home, in our community, or in our church. Lord, we thank you for your shed blood, for your broken body. We commit this time of communion to you and to your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.